Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia. Two topics on today's show. First, what are the trade-offs, the economic trade-offs, the social trade-offs, the comfort trade-offs that we all have to make when deciding what city to live in? And why isn't there a good way to measure them? We're going to talk to Josh Leonard, an economist who tried to develop just such a way. And then second, we're going to talk about the business of mixed martial arts. Last week, the UFC, which is by far the biggest promoter of mixed martial arts, was sold to a talent agency and a private equity consortium for $4 billion. But the deal is complicated in some really interesting ways, and we'll have a chat with John S. Nash of the website Bloody Elbow, who knows the sport inside and out, but has also studied the UFC's finances about as closely as anyone can. Kara, hey, you're back for a second straight week. Are you psyched? Pretty psyched. Thanks for having me back. I guess I didn't completely blow it last time. No, of course not. You were great. Um, but I am going to challenge you a little bit uh, in the introduction here. Okay, I'm going to quiz you. Okay, let's do it. All right. You've lived in New York for a few years now. You were born and raised in New York as well, yes? Yes. In the Bronx? In the Bronx. Okay. So you know quite a bit about city living. Okay. If I had to guess, I'd guess that you would probably never live in a not city. It would be a stretch unless I was retired and on the beach somewhere. So otherwise, yeah, I'll probably be okay. in a city. Hopefully not for many, many years then. Hopefully. Okay. Um Right now, uh, you live about how long from work? How long is your commute? Uh, 20 minutes on the subway. 20 minutes on the subway. That's not bad. Okay. What if I told you that you could walk to work within five minutes, but in exchange for that, you had to live in an apartment half the size of the one you live in now? Would you do it? That's a real tough dilemma because I, I mean, I think I would not do it because my commute's not that long to begin with. And my apartment's already so small. I don't know how much possibly smaller it could go. <laughs> Let me sweeten the deal a little bit more. Let's say you could walk to work, okay? Um, your apartment would have to be half as big, but you also would be paying half as much in rent. Then would you do it? Then I might do it. Yeah, I might do it because then I could buy that beach house. Okay. Unfortunately, that option is not at all on the table. Okay. I'm sorry. Um, but last October, I tweeted something kind of on a whim. I called it the cool city trilemma, which said that you could have any two of the following three things, but you couldn't have all three things. One is a short commute. Another one is a pretty big living space, a pretty big apartment. And the last one is an affordable apartment. Okay. 
So if you were willing to accept a very long commute, you could have a big place and affordable rent, okay? And I would be living in the suburbs. That's right. If you could have a very short commute, okay, you might be able to have a pretty big place, but then your rent would be stratospheric, right? Or the opposite, a pretty cheap place, but then your space would be tiny, 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 right? Right. How do you think about these trade-offs, right? Are you happy with the one you have now? Or if you could, would you accept either a bigger place in exchange for a longer commute or for more or for, to pay more in rent? Or how do you like gauge this? How did you decide to live where you live? Well, I think you have to prioritize one of the three, right? So, and then, and then work from there. So for me, I, you know, I want to live in the city. I want to be in New York. Um, I accept living in New York that I'm not going to have a tremendous amount of space. Maybe that's easier for me since I am from here. Uh, for people who are just moving here, it's probably a bit more of a shock to their system. And I think it's just realistic expectations. I don't think my commute is all that bad considering what it could be living, you know, in the city, but somewhere else in the city. Sure. Do you ever get frustrated that you don't have better options, though, that there isn't a more affordable place or that there isn't a place where you could have a little bit more space, you could have an extra bedroom or a desk at home or something like that, an office at home? I mean, because I, I think this is one of the big frustrations of people who move to cities, right? And I don't think it's limited to just people who start families and then they have no room for their kids. I think it's, this is fairly common. Do I think about it? Yeah. All the time. I think it's like one of the toughest things about living in a city is that you're constantly trading off. And I, sometimes you think, why can't I just have a little bit more or have it a little bit easier? But it's kind of the reality. I think if you're going to be in a city like New York, you know, or San Francisco or one of the fast growing places in the U.S. Right. But also, I mean, London, I think, has a similar uh, trade off, a similar series of trade offs. Right. Um, and a lot of the other big cities of the world, right? Paris as well. I mean, Tokyo, I, sure. Tokyo, you know, I, I don't know that there's anywhere in the world that hits that sweet spot of all three of those things where you have a great place to live, a short commute, and we do know that commutes are important to people's happiness, okay? Um, and it's affordable because, of course, if any one city did hit that sweet spot, everybody would go move there. We'd all be driven out. That's exactly right. Um, anyways, what's interesting about that tweet, okay, is that I put it out there, uh, in, onto social media and I thought that was the end of it. Interestingly enough, Josh Leonard, an economist, uh, at the Oregon office of economic analysis saw it, changed it a little bit and came up with his own housing trilemma. And unlike me, okay, I was done with it after I tweeted that he actually put together a fairly rigorous quantitative analysis about this housing trilemma, right? He actually tried to measure the three things, right? Which I thought was fascinating. So guess what? We get to talk to him today, don't we? We do. He's going to discuss these trade-offs of city life in a way that is both clever and newly quantifiable. Uh, so Cardiff, you and I are joined by Josh Leonard. Josh, um, as Cardiff said, you're an economist at the Oregon Office of Economic Analysis, a government agency for the state of Oregon. Thanks for being with us. It's my pleasure. Happy happy to be here and to talk about some of this new work. So the housing trilemma, uh, this is uh, a method that you developed to measure the trade-offs involved in living in different cities, different metro areas. Uh, before we get into the details of your study, why don't you just first define what the housing trilemma actually is? What are those trade-offs? 
Yeah, so every city and certainly every every region wants to have um, good housing affordability for its residents. This is something that is always at the forefront of, you know, certainly social workers and cities and municipalities and state governments and things like that, making sure you have enough affordable housing so people uh, can meet their basic needs. And then at the same time, you want to have a strong regional economy and a great quality of life. And so these are sort of the three stools or the three legs of the stool, if you will, um, of the housing trilemma. And unfortunately, you can really only have two out of these three at any given time. You, if you have success on a strong economy and a high quality of life, that means your housing affordability um, will erode because the people want to live there. People will beat down the doors to move there. And so then that puts upward pressure on, on housing prices. And so you can't really achieve all three successfully at the same time. Um, now you can, you know, reverse of that is you, you also have trouble um, not achieving success on any of the dimensions either at the same time. Okay, uh, so let's get into uh, each of those components then and talk about how you actually measured them. Um, let's start with affordability. How did you measure whether or not a metro area or a city uh, had affordable housing for its residents? Underlying the housing affordability part of, of the trilemma are three specific measures. The first one tries to gauge uh, home ownership or the affordability of home ownership, looking at the simple ratio of meeting home value uh, to meeting household income. Um, and, and, and ideally, the rough rule of thumb is three to one, right? So a home price should be three times your median income or three times your income and then thus therefore it is affordable um, in the big picture sense and then you compare this ratio across all hundred largest metropolitan areas in the nation and you come up with uh, the, the, the the median and the average of all these cities is somewhere just north of three so 3.3 is what you typically see across the hundred metropolitan areas which means um, home ownership in the typical large metro in the US is roughly affordable based on this ballpark rule of thumb. Um, of course, that's not true everywhere, and, and there's quite a few cities, particularly on the eastern seaboard and the, the west coast, that are significantly above that value, and, and therefore um, aff affordability is, is certainly a, a stretch. Okay, and job availability. Job availability, there's also three measures here. We're talking about um, the employment to population ratio for the working age population. So what share of people 25 to 54 years old actually have a job in each location, in each metropolitan area across the country. Um, so whether there's enough jobs to go around for the population, um, also included in there would be startups, right? So in terms of future economic growth and future job availability, um, talk what share of firms are less than three years old across all the metropolitan areas in the nation. So we're talking about, you know, how many jobs there are today and then some sort of perspective measure of job growth moving forward. Right. So vibrancy uh, in jobs growth, essentially. Uh, okay. And then the last one is, of course, livability or quality of life. This one would seem to be um, maybe the most abstract and therefore the hardest to quantify. So how'd you go about doing that? Absolutely. Quality of life is very much a subjective, um, a subjective measure. And so I tried to pull from some of the academic literature. There's, there's various studies that are out there. I, I chose to use some work by Professor uh, David Albui from um, University of Illinois, I believe is where he's currently located. He's done a lot of work when it comes to comparing metropolitan areas based on quality of life and some of these sort of um, reveal preference type of work in terms of what people actually pay to live near and to live 
buy. Uh, and so they kind of look at home prices relative to geographic area and relative to crime rates and weather and, and arts and restaurants and bars and things like that. And so sort of a revealed preference model he uses to compare all metropolitan areas in the nation. Um, it, it, it sort of certainly passed the sniff test, and I thought the underlying methodology made sense. And then at the end of the day, the subjective rankings, not necessarily subjective, but when you line up the metros from 1 to 300 uh, across the entire country for his work, um, I think the, the relative rankings there um, make sense to me as well. And then not only did I look at the quality of life from the academic work, uh, but also put in household purchasing power. So how far does your dollar go within within your area? And so what it does is it, is it looks at whether you can actually afford to do stuff and to live in a certain place. As I was talking with some folks down in Southern California, um, and, and the incomes in Southern California look pretty good, but the cost of living is really high. So once you adjust the, the local incomes for their purchasing power, you know, it's a lot harder to go out to eat and go to a museum or go to a, a professional sporting event or something like that. Just due to the cost of living means your dollar doesn't go as far. Okay. And then last question uh, on the methodology and your findings then before we start talking about the implications. For the housing trilemma to hold, it would mean that once you've quantified each of these three measures, some cities or metro areas would score highly on two of them, but then they would necessarily have to score very low on the other one. Was that the case? And why don't you take us through one or two of your main findings? That's right. For, for the trilemma to hold, that means um, if you score well on one or two of the dimensions, that means you score poorly on the other one or two dimensions. And you certainly see that um, across the nation, and, and it holds for the vast majority of the locations um, when you're comparing these 100 metropolitan areas uh, within their within themselves to the to the same sort of group of big cities. Um, and so what you see is really broad regional patterns uh, emerge from the data. And so a place like the Rust Belt um, has very, very good housing affordability, whether you're talking about Youngstown, Ohio, uh, even your Cleveland's and your Detroit's of the world, places like that have very, very good housing affordability. Uh, but of course, we know their economic plight in the last generation or two um, means that the economies are not particularly robust relative to the rest of the nation. Um, and, and, and the quality of life measures are also maybe not as high as they are, you see, you know, in Southern California, being near the ocean and, and, and what have you. And so in the Rust Belt, you score very, very well on the affordability dimension, but you score uh, poorly on the other two dimensions of the trilemma. Yeah. So just to clarify for our overseas listeners as well, who may not be familiar with the term, uh, the Rust Belt includes a lot of those cities that used to be manufacturing powerhouses. And the loss of manufacturing jobs has hit them quite hard. And so you see quite a lot of economic challenges uh, arising in some of those cities. But at the same time, uh, correspondingly, you have cheaper housing. So, Josh, it seems that the dream is to hit the trifecta and get um, live in a city with all three. Out of your study, how many actually fell within that? And then I'm curious how many only hit one of those. So out of the 100 metropolitan areas, 100 largest metropolitan areas in the U.S., uh, none of them rank in the top 20 on all three dimensions, right? So no metropolitan area is in the top 20, maybe even 25 um, on all three dimensions of the trilemma. So, so nowhere hits the sweet spot 
Exactly. And so to, to Cardiff's question earlier about whether this holds, um, I think that fact means that it holds pretty well across the entire country. Now, there are eight specific metropolitan areas that rank in the top half on all three dimensions. And here we're talking about, you know, in the top half, in top 50, and, and, and none of them blow it out of the park. Uh, there's two broad regions of the nation that do well on this, that kind of make it into the top half on all three dimensions. The first one, and the one I tended to focus on, uh, the Great Plains. So the middle part of the country, uh, sometimes derogatorily named flyover country. Um, this, this also happens to be where I'm from. This is where my relatives are, and this is where I was born and raised. It's, uh, you're talking about Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, uh, Omaha, Nebraska, Des Moines, Iowa, these sort of places that are, are right in the heartland of the country, and and they score pretty well on all three dimensions of the trilemma. They don't knock any particular dimension out of the park, but they do well on all three. And then the other part of the nation um, that ranks pretty well on this would what we would consider um, the Intermountain West, sort of between the Rocky Mountains and the Sierra Nevadas. So we're talking about Utah, uh, so so Salt Lake City, Provo, Ogden, Utah, places like that, and then also Boise, Idaho, uh, does pretty well. And these are the places that you know. You know, the, the, the Intermountain West scores pretty high on the quality of life and jobs availability. They've had strong population growth, strong economic growth in the last 10, 20 years. Um, and and the, as such, the affordability is starting to erode in these places as the population increases and, and, and people move there in greater numbers than maybe they had uh, in, in historically. Um, but they still do really, still do relatively well on all three dimensions. So those are part of the two broader regions of, of the country that do the best. Yeah, I guess we should also emphasize that uh, this analysis wasn't meant to drive any particular normative conclusions, that it's not about which is the best city just because it scores pretty highly on all three of these, but not really highly on any of them. Some people actually prefer the extreme end of one of those measures. So some people might prefer a very high quality of life and a lot of jobs growth and don't care as much about affordability. It, it struck me on your um, in your study, if you look at the portion of it, where you point to the kind of the percentage of that people spend on their rent and it varied, but it seemed like it varied between a fairly tight band of 40 something to 50 something percent across the cities that you studied. What did you find to be the strongest driver in some of this? Because it seemed like that was a fairly steady band. Sure. For, for the, the share of households that are classically rent burdened, so they're spending 30% of their income or more on rent, the f- middle 50 metropolitan areas in the nation are, are within a fairly tight band in terms of the percentages, but that still works out to a really large number of households. To, to talk about our region here in Oregon specifically, Portland ranks 25th or 26th highest in the rent burden households. Um, so that means 74, 75 metropolitan areas in the nation um, rank lower or rank rank better than Portland does, Portland, Oregon. But if we were to somehow magically move here in Portland, if we were to magically move from where we rank to the middle of the pack, to the median, you know, we're talking 10,000 households um, would be would have better financing for the for the rents or lower rents or higher incomes or what have you, and if we were to move all the way to where say Seattle or San Francisco is 
some other big popular West Coast cities, we're talking more like 20,000 households that would no longer be rent burdened. So so even if the, the band is just a few percentage points, we're talking tens and 20,000 uh, households just for our city. And then when we're talking about bigger cities, those numbers get even larger because Portland's not particularly large, somewhere uh, around 20, 25th largest in the nation. But, but in terms of driving the results, if what you want to look at um, for housing prices, both for rents and for the median home value that maybe you would, you would look to purchase a house, probably the number one driver, if you were to do a, a, a regression here, a, a cross-panel analysis, is the quality of life measure, right? The job availability and the economic strength factor into it, and they certainly factor into some of the underlying demographic trends of population growth and startups and things like that. But if we were to look purely at housing costs, um, the strongest indicator would be the quality of life. So Southern California in particular, San Diego, um, Los Angeles, Ox, Oxnard, and, and, and what have you, uh, Honolulu, Hawaii, um, those are the places that have the highest housing costs and also have the highest quality of life um, based based on the academic work. Sure. And I guess uh, one final point is just uh, about the policy implications of a study like this and how policymakers should regard these trade-offs. Uh, what do you think? Certainly at this point in the business cycle and in the housing cycle, um, there's been a lot made of local housing and land use policy decisions and, and regulations and what have you um, that, that are impacting the housing market. So just because a city ranks well on the economic strength or on the quality of life, um, there are still things you can do to help with the housing affordability. So it's not a lost cause um, to the extent that affordability always has to get worse in some of these popular metropolitan areas that are performing the best economically at the same time. So so I think um, that is something for policymakers to keep in mind. And I think there's been a lot of work in recent years and a strong consensus among uh, urbanists and planners and economists and, and, and folks along those lines that relaxing some of these housing market restrictions um, is a good way to improve affordability, but also to, to grow your economy is, is, is the more people and the more skills would be moving into the area. It'll, it'll propel you to stronger growth moving forward. Yeah. It also, I guess, just gives people a little bit more of what they want. In other words, if people are attracted to these cities and to these areas that have strong jobs growth, uh, and you remove some of these restrictions so that you can build more housing supply and you get them there, then you're simply giving people their preference. I think we'd have to be careful on giving them their preference. Um, being involved in, in in neighborhood group meetings over the years um, out here on the West Coast and what have you, some of the preferences are clearly that the that they don't want more housing supply. They don't want more people moving into the neighborhood and the region. Um, and, and, and so the, the, the nimbyism, the not in my backyard uh, mentality is pretty pervasive, um, particularly in a lot of the, the coastal metropolitan areas. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say it's the majority opinion, um, but it's certainly a very strong opinion and, and, and certainly have won some, some land use regulations over, over the last couple generations. Yeah, sure. When I when I mentioned preferences, I was uh, referring specifically to the preferences of the people who wanted to move to those cities. But you're absolutely right. There are competing preferences. Uh, and that's always something that's kind of difficult to work out. Josh, that's all the time we have. But thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.
along. For our next segment, we're going to discuss the business of mixed martial arts. Last week, the UFC, the biggest promotion of mixed martial arts, was sold for $4 billion to a talent agency called WMEIMG, and it was backed by a private equity consortium that included Silver Lake and KKR. Now, for those of our listeners who don't follow MMA or mixed martial arts, the sport resembles the name. MMA fights allow the use of a combination of techniques from across martial arts, and there's an interesting debate to be had about whether MMA really is as violent as its reputation. But for this segment, we're talking about the economics and management of the sport, and we're doing it with a writer who has covered it about as closely as anyone can. John Nash of the website Bloody Elbow last year wrote a big series on the UFC's finances, and more recently he published an article on how we should regard the successful but also controversial in many ways legacy of its prior owners, the brothers Frank and Lorenzo Fertitta, and Dana White, the bombastic president who has agreed to stay with the company for five more years. He joins us now from his offices in Los Angeles. John, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, I thought we'd start uh, just by explaining to our listeners uh, how the UFC actually makes its money. In the early years of the prior owners, so 2001, 2002, 2003, uh, the vast majority of their money was made um, from events, from pay-per-view sales and from tickets. Um, As you described in your series last year, uh, the revenue sources eventually started diversifying um, to the point where they are now, where there's actually quite a wide range of places where the UFC makes its money. Why don't you just start by uh, taking us through some of those and telling us which of those are dominant? Okay. Yeah. When it first started, um, it was it's a live event company, and it's been a live event company for years now. And its uh, original streams were ticket sales, uh, which was a big portion of its revenue, and pay per views, which were actually low at that time, even though that made up a good chunk of its revenue, and some merchandise sales like DVDs online. Uh, after the Ultimate Fighter took off in 2005, the reality show that basically launched it into American uh, mainstream American conscious. And that really took off. Pay-per-view sales went through the roof. So they started making a lot of money on pay-per-view. They started making, you know, $100 million a year alone on pay-per-view. And since then, they've kind of expanded into a, a media company much more than just a live event company. They have uh, TV deals, which they sell not just live contact, but content, but the reality show, uh, repackaged shows. They have a TV deals. They have foreign TV deals. They now sell video game licensing rights, which they had their fighters sign over the image rights to the UFC, so now they have the right to sell video games with all their fighters. They have merchandise deals of not just the UFC logo, but also their fighters. Uh, So they have all these different packages, and they've now included a live stream uh, of basically their own channel, the Fight Pass, and that's another revenue stream that just keeps growing and growing. So they, uh, on top of making all their original platforms more valuable, they keep adding new platforms, new revenue streams. Right, and that's in addition to having expanded quite a bit and quite aggressively yes. uh, overseas mm-hmm. as well, not just being a North American-based company. Yeah, they've moved definitely into Brazil. I think last year they did over $80 million of business in Brazil. Uh, they have the UK, uh, Australia. Both, mostly the English-speaking world is very – MMA has become very popular in Canada, and, and they're now making strides to go into Latin America with Mexico, uh, uh, the rest of Europe, uh, and potentially China, which is probably the uh, the holy grail for them. And I want to talk now a little bit about the first half of the tenure of ownership um, under the Fertitta brothers and Dana White. You wrote in your piece last week, uh, 
that it really has to be considered one of the great staggering success stories um, in sports management. In other words, a company that was valued at just a couple of million dollars when they bought it, growing into a company that was eventually sold for $4 billion. Can you just kind of take us through what some of those early years were like, the steps they took um, to become such a dominant presence, both in, obviously, in the MMA landscape, but also, you know, in the American sports landscape as well. Yeah, I think their first four years was mostly spent on just two activities, one, staying afloat, and two, getting noticed by the, the general public. The original UFC, when it was created uh, in the early 90s, it was actually very immensely successful, very immensely popular. I and mean, people sometimes might forget that. But in the 90s, it, it sold hundreds of thousands of pay-per-views back when pay-per-view uh, reach was one-third what it is today. So it was very successful. And then John McCain and everybody went after it, and it almost shut down. And so the UFC bought this damaged, much lower-valued company and started trying to bring it back. And one step was they had to pour money into keeping it afloat and because the previous owners were cutting costs. So the UFC, had a, they were putting money into keep retaining fighters and putting on better shows. And they also spent a lot of time and effort trying to get the general public back to buying pay-per-views. And that didn't really work for four years. And they pumped, supposedly, they, you know, they claimed they put $44 million into staying afloat. Uh, and a good portion of that was spent on ad marketing campaigns. You know, they hired Carmen Electra and models to go out and, and try to sell the UFC to the public, and that didn't work. So they were bleeding money, and eventually they convinced Spike to put them on the Spike TV to put them on air with the reality show, and that finally got them back to where they started selling massive amount of pay per views. And from that point on, it's been basically just up uphill the whole time. Was that uh, also around the time when you saw the emergence of the first kind of UFC superstars, right? There were certainly some names that are well known to MMA fans before then. But I mean, in terms of someone like Chuck Liddell, he actually became a recognized figure on late night talk shows and things like that. Star power, how important is that to the uh, profitability of the company? I, th I think it's immensely. In fact, uh, I mean, a big part of their turnaround you can, you can give credit to a big portion of their success to the star power of their fighters. Uh, they, when they wrote to Deutsche Bank asking for the original loan back in 2007, they described the 2002 fight between uh, Tito Ortiz and Ken Shamrock as the, uh, the turning point for the company. Uh, and, uh, and that was the point that saved the company liquidity, that they stopped losing so much money and they retained the fan base they had. And then after that, 2005, when you had the Ultimate Fighter, uh, Forrest Griffith, and uh, Stefan Bonner with that big fight, and then you had Tito Ortiz and Chuck Liddell and Randy Couture in this great rivalry, the company took off, and they called that moment the tipping point, where that's where it took off and made just a bunch of money. And so it's as much as the UFC's done a lot with the brand and the company, uh, you you look at all their major moments. So the moment they took off in Canada, you can you can find that George St. Pierre took off as a champ. The moment they had the big 2009 UFC 100 explosion, Brock Lesnar, the pro wrestler, came in and became champ. The expansion now with Conor McGregor and with women, with Ronda Rousey, all of them also involve a very big, well-promoted, very charismatic star pushing them into a new market. Right. And then as I guess you got into the, the late 2000s, uh, it became clear that this was uh, an organization that was likely to keep growing and to keep expanding overseas. It was shortly after that that they signed uh, the big deal with Fox that you mentioned earlier, which followed on the deal that they had 
previously uh, with Spike TV. And then a few years ago, they started Fight Pass. And you mentioned uh, Fight Pass is the online streaming service where you can see some fights, but where there's also a big library of past UFC fights. It costs about $100 a year. Can can you explain uh, the importance of Fight Pass uh, to the future of the UFC? Well, I I think the the big the very important part of Fight Pass is it gives control of the company to the content, to distribution. Uh, there's No one has a clue what's going to happen with cable companies and, and uh, streaming and all that stuff. What Fight Pass gives them, it gives them an ability to control their content and, and charge a premium price for it, for distribution. So they have a revenue stream that they have control over. Uh, and with it, they offer fights on the UFC. They offer, uh, you can order pay-per-views through it. So, through it, so instead of the pay-per-view distrib- provider, Getting a bigger cut of the of the price tag when they when they go to a pay per view company, they get to keep much more of that money, and they also offer fights from other promotions. So if you're a fight fan, you're going to sign on to Fight Pass, and they're just going to keep growing and growing that. And if they ever get into trouble, or or if a uh, cable TV or any trustful TV station doesn't give them an offer they like, they can start moving more and more of their product to Fight Pass and keep building that up. Yeah, I mean it's also sensible given that. So many people are now talking about just the future of television in general, right? People cutting the cord or whatever. Well, they're already um, they already have an existing platform where, if that becomes a huge global trend, then they're already well positioned to take advantage of it. Exactly, they're 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 forward thinking. We can say that about them. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so let's talk now um, about some of the managerial challenges that we've seen, at least in the last half decade or so. You mentioned the UFC's dominance earlier. I don't think this can be stressed enough, really. Uh, in terms of MMA, it's not the only game in town, but it's certainly the biggest by a lot. Something like 90% of all revenues made in North American mixed martial arts goes to the UFC. There are smaller promotions, but they're kind of considered second rank. Um, can you just talk about... Uh, the positioning that the UFC has achieved and how it got there, because it wasn't just through organic growth. They've done a lot of acquiring as well. Oh yeah. They're, they are, as they're the self-described, they describe in their, you know, their letters to the lenders and stuff as the 800 pound gorilla of MMA. And they have uh, not yet, probably 90% of the market in North America. They're the, their big rivals is Viacom owns a promotion called uh, Bellator. And then there's another promotion called World Series of Fighting and other ones, but those are really, it's hard to describe them and anything other than the term minor league the ufc besides getting 90 percent of the revenue when you look at the rankings every number one or number two fighter on independent rankings is in the ufc right now in all the divisions 85 percent of all the top 10 fighters uh in all the divisions are in the ufc so basically every top fighter all the money is going to the ufc and mma they their mma might be bigger in the sense that there's all these promotions putting out events but the UFC is definitely the uh, is is almost MMA is almost UFC. The UFC is almost MMA. They they really are that that big. That when you were talking about the business of MMA, you're talking about the UFC. Yeah, uh, and in your piece, um, well, in multiple pieces, you've uh, discussed uh, the UFC's margins, which have been really quite healthy uh, for a while now. One of the reasons um, is that it holds down its costs and especially fighter pay. And there's been kind of a contentious relationship, not kind of it. There has been a definitively contentious relationship between the UFC and its fighters, especially those fighters that aren't household names, that aren't superstars. Can you talk a little bit about that relationship and why it is 
that UFC fighters make such a low share of revenues relative to the share of revenues earned by athletes in other major sports? Well, I mean, the relationship is the, I'm sure a lot of fighters appreciate the UFC that they've grown the sport, as they say. They've made the sport bigger. But there's definitely a a resentment level from a lot of them that they feel they're not paid enough. And the reason they're not paid enough is there's just not a lot of competition out there. And part of that's the UFC being smart businessmen. They've uh, they've done a great job of branding the UFC, making the UFC the star. So the UFC itself has value. So the UFC can draw money that the fighters by themselves don't bring. But the other reason is because uh, as much as, you know, no one wants to say monopoly or monopsony, and, and they're in a lawsuit over that currently, the UFC really does have market power over the over the market of MMA. They are such a dominant player with the way MMA works that if you want to get noticed as a fighter, you have to sign in the UFC. And because you have to sign in the UFC, the UFC has the leverage. And now that you're under contract the UFC, they have more leverage. And and the, there's no other opportunities to go any, anywhere else because everybody's trying to get into the UFC. And because of those reasons, the UFC can keep wages remarkably low, 15% of total revenue. And so that's why we see margins of 30%, 40% on their profit side. Yeah, and, and the contracts that the fighters end up signing with the UFC end up being quite restrictive, not not necessarily just in terms of the money they make for each fight, but also in terms of their own ability to to promote themselves through merchandising agreements, image rights, things like that. That's, I guess, uh, got to be really frustrating to fighters, especially since they are independent contractors and therefore it's harder for them to unionize. Oh yeah, I mean that's I mean that's part of the design of the UFC. I'm sure they sat down with labor experts and said what can we do with to keep our fighters independent contractors. Uh, and because they're independent contractors, they have limited ability to collectively bargain. And so when the UFC comes to these individuals and say, "Well, we want to have you sign this new addendum to your contract." There's very little leverage they can push back, the fighters. So they're forced to give up their, their – in 2008, they gave up their merchandise rights. So now the UFC has the right to sell their merchandise, and the fighters in return get 10 or 20% uh, commission based on that, which, you know, which based on – it's not – that's not an equitable split. The UFC is keeping the other 80 or 90%, that means, on all those sales. Uh, they they ask for the fighters to give up their video game rights, images to be used in video game rights in perpetuity. So now the UFC can sell video games. And if they want, they can split some of that with the fighters, but they don't have to. So all these little things, besides when you're a UFC fighter, you're not just giving over, you're not just signing on to fight for them. You're signing on to fight for them and let and let them use your image to sell other products for themselves. Yeah, in terms of um, uh, a fighter's costs, I, I think this is something that's uh, a little bit hard for just casual fans to kind of get their arms around. So in terms of how they get paid, right, uh, they have the disclosed sum of money that they make um, for the fight. They have a potential fight night award sometimes, knockout of the night, submission of the night. Um, there is sometimes, especially for the stars, an undisclosed amount of money that they make. And then there is a kind of tiered system that they get from the merchandising agreement that the UFC has with merchandisers like Reebok. But they also have costs, right? They have training camp costs. Some of them have to hire a manager or an agent. I mean, can you sort of give us a sense of how these things balance out? Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, if you're familiar with boxing, it's very similar to boxing. Uh, This isn't like team sports where you have the coach and the the training camp and everything's taken care of by the the team. When you're a fighter, you have to pay for your own training. 
you have to pay for your own equipment in the, in the training camps, the gloves, all the equipment you go through. You have to pay for your training partners because you can't practice for a big fight by yourself. You have to bring people into fight. And then you have to pay for a manager to look out for you, hopefully look out for you. Not all of them do that. If you're you know, a fan of boxing, you realize that managers are a big problem too. So you're talking, uh, when you look at someone's purse, how much money they make, uh, you probably can deduct and say 40% of that's gone. They get to keep 60% of that. Uh, that's 40% of their expenses for doing business as an independent contractor, and they get to keep 60 On the pay side, the UFC is split basically in four different types of pay. You have your, your reported pay. That's what's shown to the commission. That's your typical pay. You have your reported bonuses, like the fight of the night. If you have a good fight, the UFC will give you 50000 Everybody knows about that. And then you have the undisclosed pay. Some of it's contractual, where they, they promise to pay fighters, but they don't reveal that to the public. And then there's undisclosed bonuses where, for whatever reason, they like what you did. You might get a check in the mail for $5,000 a week or two later. And so that's, and that's one of the, it's, it's positive for the fighters that they, you know, they're making more money on some of that stuff. They're making more money than some people might realize. But the negative is no one knows exactly what people are, are getting paid. So it's harder to negotiate when you have no clue what other people are making in your same profession. And also it's a lot of it's discretionary that you're a little bit intimidated to to ruffle feathers or rock the boat because that discretionary income might not come in anymore. In the limited amount of time we've got left, I guess I want to cover a couple of the other managerial issues that the prior owners have had to deal with. And then just to kind of ask what your sense is of whether or not the new owners will, in a sense, clean up those areas or maybe professionalize the sport somehow um, to avoid some of the same stumbles of the prior owners. Uh, Here's the first one, steroid use. There have been some... uh, U.S. ADA violations of note recently. Um, And for a while, I think the criticism was that the UFC um, didn't really want to deal with this. They certainly are dealing with it now. Uh, Do you think that this will become less of a problem um, under the new owners? Do you think they're paying a lot more attention to it now? Well, they they brought in USADA. They made a major effort to, I guess, clean up the sport. Uh, This is something I don't know if it's... uh, I don't know if it's that fixable in the sense that it's, you know, they, if there's more they can do, they've already basically in for, put on their athletes uh, restrictions that the athletes had no say in. And so a lot of athletes are upset about that, but at the same time, how much further can they go? They're, they're doing, it seems at least they're claiming they're doing more extensive testing than other sports. And when you're, you know, when you're a pro athlete and you're looking for every, every edge you can get, and there's money involved, especially in prize fighting where the money between winning and losing is a massive, uh, I just don't see how you get around uh, some guys trying to to cheat. Okay. Domestic abuse. There was an HBO special about the problem with domestic violence amongst UFC fighters. It showed that the rate at which it happened amongst fighters was higher, not just in the general population, but also higher than other professional sports, including notably the NFL, which has had some very high profile problems with this. Do you think the UFC needs to do more to address this, maybe come down a little bit harder on those of its fighters that either get accused of having engaged in domestic violence or are convicted of it? I would personally like to see him be a little more preemptive about it because uh, we are dealing with athletes uh, that I think are are much more susceptible to being uh, abusers. And, and this is not to say that they're bad people, but you think about the profession. The profession involves brain damage, and, and there's been a lot of links to CTE and domestic violence. And they, they're, they're jobs that have incredible stress with economics. And what is the big indicators of domestic violence? It's economic problems at home. So you put these together and you are making a recipe uh, for, you know, people engaged in, who also engage in a violent sport 
who also possibly get brain damage, who possibly have economic problems, that seems like a recipe for domestic violence. So I think just purely from a PR stance, uh, to, to beat it at the, beat it off at the pass, I think the UFC should look into some sort of preemptive methods to, to isolate guys, to identify who's at risk and to do something about it before it gets out of hand. Okay. And then my final question uh, is just to ask your opinion of the new owners, uh, WME IMG, a talent agency that's had a relationship with the UFC before. Now they've taken it over with the help of a couple of uh, private equity buyers. What do you think they're going to do? And you can answer that question uh, along whatever whatever angle uh, you like. I mean, what do you see as uh, the likely path forward for the sport under these new guys? I think I think they're going to monetize it more. I think that's their goal. They're going to look to expand it into uh, maybe the more mainstream in the U.S., uh, look for new avenues of revenue, try to get a bigger TV deal and uh, try to expand into China and overseas more. So they're going to they're going to. They're going to be looking to expand and monetize the sport more to get a return on that $4 billion they spent. John Nash, Bloody Elbow. Thanks so much for your time, man. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Never thought the Financial Times would be covering face punching, but here we are. <laughs> Actually, I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm the only one. <laughs> and that is the end of the interview segment of today's show. But Kara and I are here for our long-form recommendations for our listeners. Kara, I'm excited about this. What is yours? My long-form recommendation is actually a three-part series that National Geographic is doing this summer on sharks. For each month in the magazine, it's focused on a particular shark. First month's tiger shark, then the uh, white tip sharks, and the great white. And it goes into, you know, some analysis of why we're seeing shark movement trends, why how the climate affects it, how's even the protection of certain species like sea turtles has an impact then on the predator line, which might seem obvious, but it's an interesting story kind of taking time to look at each of these species and see how they are changing as the oceans themselves are changing. Plus, as National Geographic, I would imagine there are some splendid pictures of sharks in there. Pretty cool pictures, and I'm kind of jealous of the reporters that got to go diving with them. What what are some of the shark movement trends uh, that they describe? Well, in, in this one, for instance, the tiger shark, which, you know, it really is attracted to the warm waters. Uh, some sharks prefer colder water. But the tiger sharks, because of the various areas of protection that governments have, you know, figured out they need to protect the seas, they need to protect coral, they need to protect certain habitats— They've protected the sea turtles, and what they find through that is you kind of have a you can have the sea turtles protected, which then can have an impact on the algae. Now the algae is being eaten more because the sea turtles are there, and if the sharks are had been driven away because of a dwindling population, they're not there to put the check on the sea turtles, and so there's no one to check the overeating of the algae. So it just kind of has all these very interesting implications. And, um, you know, in currents with the seas warming, you see the seas being warmer in certain areas. So you see the sharks heading into different seas more where they, they wouldn't have been there 100 years ago. But what's also interesting is some of these sharks, like the tiger shark, lives on the element of surprise. So it might, when they track them, they might be in one area, might never be seen for the next five years back in that area. And then other areas they tend to revisit. So it's just, it's it's kind of a, you know, a long discussion, but interesting dynamic about how the changing seas 
both from climate change, but also from environmental protection has an impact. This is fascinating. And also, you're definitely going to be on my team the next time there's a trivia night or whatever. I had no idea that you were so interested in sea life and aquatic life. That's awesome. It's pretty cool. What's your long form recommendation? Mine is an article in Politico by Glenn Thrush about the relationship between Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama and how it's evolved in the last couple of years, especially as Hillary Clinton's campaign has been ramping up. Uh, It's a really fascinating look into the nature of political alliances. And I don't think it's an exaggeration to say into the nature of a political friendship, one that's developed over time from a really contentious time in 2008. And people, I think, forget how vicious things got back then when Hillary and Barack Obama were rival senators competing for the Democratic nomination back then. I mean, it got really bad, right? to a relationship that developed over time because Hillary Clinton was, of course, Barack Obama's secretary of state. They gained mutual respect for each other. They were teammates for a while. But also there's going to be a little bit of tension because Hillary Clinton doesn't want to be seen as just running for Barack Obama's third term, essentially, right? She wants to be her own person. Um, And all of the different things that come up as they coordinate her campaign with each other and the potential trade-off later on, the fact that they have staffers who've worked for both sides before, for both Barack Obama and for Hillary Clinton in the past, how they get along. It's a really kind of insightful, close look at the nature of how these kinds of relationships developed. And I think uh, it gives you a window into this that you don't often get. I'm sure it sounds like an interesting piece. That's great. Uh, Highly recommended by Glenn Thrush. He is, I believe, Politico's chief political correspondent or one of their big political correspondents over there. And that's the end of today's show. Just a quick note before we close out that Alpha Chat is going to be on a break of sorts for the next few weeks. But Amy and I have pre-recorded some excellent material. So we are still going to be uploaded to your feed every week. Check it out. And we'll be back with newsier, more timely episodes of Alpha Chat in mid-August. Thanks again. It's been an amazing year. Since we relaunched Alpha Chat, we really appreciate your listening to us. Thanks so much to Kara for guest hosting. Listeners, you can give us a call at 917-551-5012. That's a U.S. number, country code, plus one. Tell us about your trade-offs in terms of where you've chosen to live. You can also email us at alphachat at ft.com. You can rate and review the show at iTunes. Please do that. It really does help people find us. And finally, on Twitter, you can find Kara Scannell. That's two N's, two L's, at Kara Scannell. I'm at Cardiff Garcia. And finally, you can get the show notes for this episode and all the other episodes at ft.com forward slash alpha chat. There is no trilemma when it comes to working with Amy Keene. Her greatness is uncompromised. Thanks for everything, Amy, our producer and editor. Thanks to our listeners. We'll see you here again next week for another edition of Alpha Chat. The latest episode of The Next Five podcast is all about AI and the business travel sector. I speak to Tim LaBelle, head of product for SAP Concur Spend Solutions. We'll have so much data that our travel will be safer. Shelley Fletcher-Bryan, VP of Advito. AI can certainly contribute to more eco-friendly travel practices. And author and public speaker, Theo Lau. AI can help us predict when it will be a peak travel, more delays, cancelled flights. Listen to the full episode of The Next Five wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy.